0: This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. People don't like to hear this, but if you know anything about history at all, you know societies break down as soon as the family starts to break down. We don't want to admit that because we don't want to suggest for a moment that there's something bad about the breakdown of the family because we want to do what we want to do. All I'm saying is go ahead and do what you want to do. But the breakdown of society begins when the family begins to crumble. Today. 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 Today with Jeff finds We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Hey, you make me. Today. Today with Jeff Vines. Hello and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. The message we're about to hear concludes what we started last time. It's a message about the ending of everything, which might sound a bit dramatic, but Pastor Jeff will explain how our view of eternity should define the way we're living right now. Here's Pastor Jeff with the rest of this message. remember what God said to Israel when Israel said, give us a king? God said, you sure you want a king to govern you? What will change then in the kingdom that is to come? What will change is that God will be the king and he will rule and he will be a king of a staggering generosity, incredible provision, having demonstrated that into giving up his own son so that he wouldn't lose you. Imagine him being in charge of everything. And The first church knew, however, that they could give people a glimpse of that kingdom by the way they live now. And so in Acts chapter 2, we read all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They knew that their property and possessions was all given by God anyway, and one day everything they need is going to be provided. So the sphere of economics and human need will be transformed in the kingdom. Second, the sphere of politics will be altered. Can you say amen? Amen. In human history, the sphere of politics has been the story of human conflict. We just don't govern ourselves very well. Before you start blaming God for the condition of the world, just look around, man, at the decisions that we make. But where the kingdom of God is involved in Isaiah 2:4 it says, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. No more fighting, screaming, yelling, bombing, hating, killing, and death. One man writes this way humorously, ballistic missile Silos will be converted into training tanks for inner city kids to learn scuba diving. <laughs> Not that there's gonna be inner city kids in the kingdom that is to come, it's imagery, it's metaphor. Isaiah 11 says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the little child shall lead them. What's it mean? It means there's gonna be peace in the world, peace with man and man and man and God, man and animals. Now, I have my own version of this. It goes like this The lion will lay down with the lamb. The snake will not bite the dog. The dog will make peace with the rabbit, and the cat shall be no more. That's my little <laughs> little philosophy there. I've got a second one. I had some time this week. The Dodgers will win every World Series. The Giants will never make the playoffs. The Angel fans will make peace with the Dodger fans. And the Raiders will be no more. So the point is this. The point is that it will be a world of peace and selflessness. There will be no selfies in heaven. In the kingdom that is to come, we'll call them selflesslys, where all your photos will be about other people. Facebook, Facebook will be called praise book, because rather than telling me what you did all day, which I frankly don't care will be about what God did in you and through you, which I do care about. The Bible says that the political world will be impacted to such a degree in eternity in Revelation 21, 25, on no day will its gates be shut, for there will be no more night there. Now, does that mean there's going to be no more night or darkness? No, it's, again, it's imagery. You're in apocalyptic literature. Night is a symbol in Jesus' day for vulnerability and fear. You don't go out at night, but fear is gone in the kingdom that is to come because the taintedness of sin is gone. I remember, you know, traveling to Zimbabwe a few years ago and I had to stop in at Johannesburg. I believe it's called Jan Smuts Airport. I arrived late and I had to go out the next morning on a flight. I had about eight hours to kill. So I had this great idea that I was just going to store my luggage and walk downtown Johannesburg. Some friends of mine said, if you do that, you won't come back. The crime rate at that point was so high, there's carjackings, break-ins, there's rape and torture. And I thought about that, that I had to sleep in the airport and wait till the next day to take the flight out. I couldn't even go outside. And then I thought of the article I read later that said South Africans, both black and white, left homes, immigrated to New Zealand and Australia because their fears surpassed their love for Africa. Now, if you've ever been to Africa, you know that it gets into your blood. I often talk about when the day comes that I retire, I know what I'll do. I'll be in Africa teaching leaders and training leaders to finish the third tier of evangelism. Someday that will happen. Once Africa gets in your blood, it doesn't get out. It just calls you. So for people to have grown up there and love it so much that they're willing to leave it because fear overrides their love speaks volumes. But in the kingdom of God, think about your most favorite place without fear. Because on no day will its gates be shut, for there will be no more night there, no reason to fear, no more security systems, just love, peace, and harmony with God and security that someone's body watching over you. It's a world where Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, will get closer and closer to dangerous, venomous animals, and we'll live to talk about it. It's a world where you don't have to lock your doors, and neighborhoods are governed by love and peace, where brotherhood reigns in that there are more brothers than hoods. Where I can swim with the sharks and the whales, hang out with the lions and the tigers, and never have to fear again. The kingdom that is to come impacts economic and human need and politics. But it also, number three, impacts the sphere of relationships. Luke 1.17 says, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. and the kingdom of God, fathers will be real men. They will recognize their responsibility to their children. They will love and care and nurture their sons and daughters. They will love God and they will love like God loves unconditionally. And there'll be no more separations or divorce or affairs or abuse or neglect. No more unloved, unwanted children. And members of the household will stay up late at night thinking about how they can better serve each other. And an older sister will insist that her younger brother gets the larger piece of cake. And mothers will love their sons, and fathers will love their daughters, and God will be loved by all. And there will still be reality television, but it will be episodes entitled, My Spouse Secretly Loves Me Twice As Much As I Thought He Did. (laughs) Husbands will hold their wives in the highest regard. Wives will love, respect, and honor their husbands. Families will stay together. Children will feel safe. And because all of this is happening in our world, the Bible says that even the trees of the field will clap their hands. Now here's the second question. If that's what's going to happen at a rapid fire pace, when the king returns to restore all things that have been lost, how do we get people to believe in this again? And the answer is very simple. We live in such a way as to give people a glimpse of what is yet to come. If you've been to Disneyland and you want to convince me, you're going to have to be wearing some paraphernalia, bring back a Donald Duck, Mickey Mouse, or something that relates to Disneyland. The Bible says that there's something that's happened to you that is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Ephesians 1.14, When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, something's happened to you. And that's supposed to remind you that if, if it's possible that you can be transformed here and now, just 10%, a little deposit, That's supposed to show you that one day in the future when the kingdom comes, not only will your spirit be willing, but your flesh will be able. A couple of months ago, I received a message from a friend, an old basketball buddy of mine that I hadn't seen in 25 years. Evidently, he is in Los Angeles doing business and he looked up, found my name and found that I was a pastor of a church and he wanted to come to one of the services. I got to tell you about this guy. One of the most self-centered, narcissistic, womanizing, foul-mouthed, crude, rude, and barbaric guys, and that's on a good day that you would ever meet. And I thought, wow, this is going to be interesting. But he wanted to meet, so I met him out after the 10 o'clock at the cafe. As soon as I saw him, I know I, you just notice an immediate difference. It's that humble look of gentleness. You could tell he loved his wife. He's a one-woman man, gracious, kind. put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, Jeff, I'm so proud of you, man. Give him Jesus. And I thought, wow, I'm in the twilight zone. This guy, this is the same guy. I could tell you some stories. But then I was reminded that transformation in people is a deposit guaranteeing what is one day gonna come. Now, in the same way, transformation by Christ's followers in the community in which they've been called is a deposit guaranteeing to everybody in this valley. That there's a kingdom, and it's coming, and the king is going to return. And they start to believe it because they see deposits of the kingdom in you right now. We convince people of the renewal that is to come by showing them the renewal that is possible now. By revealing what can happen when Christians get involved in relationships and economics and even the political world. Isn't it interesting when Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, did he not use the present tense? In Mark 1, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus says, The kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying, It's available right now. Up there can come down here. It's possible now that you can give people a glimpse of what one day is coming where there's no poverty, where there's no fear, where relationships are healed. The kingdom of God is right here, right now. It's upon you. Jesus said when you pray to the disciples, pray what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth now as it is in heaven. And the early church got it. And they got it to such a degree that they devoted their hearts to it. They sacrificed their possessions for it, their careers, their homes. They gave it all up. They lived and died for it. And they did it with extreme joy. They did it laughing and weeping and dancing, unable to... Fathom their good fortune that they could be part of the kingdom of God coming to earth. John Ortberg says, In human history, one life has already been lived on this earth in the flesh in which God's will had unhindered sway. Jesus bore in his own person, in his own flesh and blood, the reality of the kingdom of God. And everybody saw a life lived in the reality of God, a life in which whatever God desired is what was chosen. And so here's the question. How do we, this is the end So I'm not going to preach for eternity. (laughs) This is the end. How then do we convince people this kingdom and eternity is real? By doing now, what the Bible tells us will one day be completed. So first, we impact the sphere of economics and human need to reduce hunger and poverty. There should be no child going to bed hungry in this valley on our watch There should be no more mothers trying to find food to feed her baby for one more night on our watch. See, Jeff, that's big. I know it. We're feeding hundreds in bumper bags, but I'm not so interested right now in what we do as a church. I'm interested in what you do as an individual because we have a lot of power as individuals. So that means that you've got to be more aware of people in need around you, and then you've got to make yourself available. You've got to move past pity into mercy. I'm so proud of a few people. This week after last week's message, on Monday morning I was getting coffee and there was a young uh, attractive girl, Andrea was her name. And Andrea had seen this lady in the parking lot that evidently frequents Clatch Coffee parking lot in the mornings to try to go to Target, buy some candy, and then she sells it for 50 cents more to try to feed her daughter and mother they're staying in this cheap hotel. She's trying to make ends meet. I don't know the full story But Andrea heard the message last week and she decided, wait a minute, I'm not just going to buy some candy. I'm going to go in and buy some food. I'm going to take it to her. Then I'm going to engage her in conversation and then I'm going to try to see if I can help in some way. And I was so proud of her as I walked out to my car, saw her talking one-on-one to this woman and the smile that was brought to her face. See, if everybody did that, oh my. We impact the sphere, second of politics, to reduce fear and bring peace. People are always after me. Why aren't you more involved in politics? And let me just say again, it's not my call. My call is not to get involved in the political world. If it's your call as a Christian, fine, go do it. But it's not my call. I'll tell you, I'll tell you something, though. I'd have to hear a pretty loud call. Because it's, it's not effective. If you want to change a community, give them Jesus. You got, you're going to try to legislate morality. Good luck. You say, "Well, do you have any proof?" Yes. You're not going to believe this. I found this in the Huffington Post, I and mean, you're know the Huffington Post, right? It's so far left, it's almost right again. I mean, <laughs> this is not a Christian journal. I read this article. Listen, it says violent crime decreases as greater numbers of people were religiously active in their community. In the big picture. Religious presence seems to matter to the amount of violence and crime in a community, says Jeffrey Ulmer, professor of sociology and crime law and justice at Pennsylvania State. He, said, he does give a warning in the article. He says, now hold on, just don't expect young men and women to be among the growing numbers of people who consider themselves spiritual, not religious, to have the same moral inhibitions. Hear what he's saying? There are a lot of people who claim to be spiritual, and those who just claim to be spiritual but are separated... From church and from community are as likely to engage in both types of criminal activity. Faith, he says, may be one of the most personal areas in the lives of individuals, but it can also collectively exert moral influence over an entire community," scholars say. Well, I got a scholar by the name of Jesus said that 2,000 years ago." He says, what they found was not only evidence that religion may exert a protective influence discouraging violent crime but that there are also racial-ethnic differences in the role of faith communities. In other words, there's far less racism. He said, consider these findings. Black and white violence decreased significantly as the percentage rose of county residents who belonged to congregations or were regular attenders. He goes on to say, further breakdown showed communities with larger percentage of evangelicals had lower rates of violence. Wow, I can't believe they'd even admit that. The findings suggest that religious groups have the ability to cultivate moral attitudes that counteract the code on the streets. Communities, he says, lose out when they marginalize or trivialize the potential pro-social influences of the evangelical world. I love it. So the reason I don't get involved in politics and trying to legislate morality is because I'm too busy giving people Jesus. (laughs) If you really want our community to change, give them Jesus. Then you don't have to legislate morality. God does something in their heart. They'll be better citizens. They'll commit less crimes. And they'll have a heart and passion for the less fortunate. And only Jesus is big enough to change their hearts that way. And finally, this is the end, the end end. (laughs) We impact the sphere of relationships to reduce the breakup of the family and the breakdown of society. People don't like to hear this, but if you know anything about history at all, you know societies break down as soon as the family starts to break down. We don't want to admit that because we don't want to suggest for a moment that there's something bad about the breakdown of the family because we want to do what we want to do. All I'm saying is go ahead and do what you want to do. But the breakdown of society begins when the family begins to crumble. So it has been my heart since eight years ago, To establish this program in every middle school in our valley. And I know it's not going to happen overnight. This thing called kaleidoscope where we go in. We're doing this now. And from three to five o'clock in the afternoon. So that mom can know the single mom or single dad who's trying to make ends meet. Who works a nine to five job. What do they do with the kids for the two hours after school? We take them. We coach them. We mentor We teach them values in hopes that we can save the lives of these at-risk children and give them a perspective on the world that is to come and the world they're in now. It's it's what we do. We, We give a little glimpse of the kingdom that is to come when we love the least of these and we try to break the cycle. So how do we get people to see eternity again? We just give them a glimpse of it now in your life. Remember what we said last week, people? I told about the interview between uh, when Michael Jordan scored 61 points and Scotty Pippen was interviewed, he had scored two points. Remember this illustration? And the interviewer said, hey, Scotty, how was your game? He said, well, me and Michael Jordan scored 63 points. (laughs) Be careful that you don't get caught in the the habit of saying, well, me and CCV feed 10,000 people. What are you doing? Let me end this way. Mary Chapin's book, a book entitled The World Was Not Worthy, a great read, tells the story of what happened in Yugoslavia. Now, if you know anything about your Yugoslavian history, you'll know that the church perpetrated awful atrocities in the name of God in Yugoslavia. And sometimes when I read stories like this, I have to remind myself of something Billy Graham once said that Thousands and thousands of planes take off on land every day that you never hear about, but when one crashes, you hear everything about that. There are plenty of priests and pastors and churches all over the world, faith-based organizations doing so much good in the name of Christ, but you still have those who abuse. And so, there was a man by the name of Zimmerman, she writes about, whose family had been abused by the church. And a young missionary by the name of Yaakov came to give this Yugoslavian village, the name of Jesus, to bring restoration to it. One of the first persons he talked to, the leader of the village, Zimmerman. And as soon as Yakov brought up Jesus' name, Simmerman said, don't talk to me about those Christians. And he said, they wear those elaborate coats and caps and crosses signifying a heavenly commission, but their evil designs and lives I cannot ignore. So Yakov changed the topic, but he continued to come back and serve the children of Zimmerman's village in the community day after day after day, refusing to give up. One day he got a great idea. He would tell a story to Zimmerman. So he said, Simmerman, let's say that I steal your coat and your hat and I go into the city and I rob a bank and then I run back home. The police aren't going to come to me. They're going to come to you and they're going to knock on the door and say, Simmerman, you just robbed the bank. And you're going to say, no, I didn't. And they're going to say, but I saw your coat and your hat. Yaakov was trying to say that there are imposters of Jesus everywhere. Just because somebody looks the part doesn't mean that they are the part. But there are some who live it out every day. The gospel has penetrated their lives. Still, Zimmerman wasn't very happy with the example. He knew the analogy and the ramifications of it, and so he was quiet for a few more months. But Yaakov continued to serve and love, meet the needs of the kids in his community. And finally one day, Yaakov was sitting just outside of the hostel where they lived. And Simmerman looked at Yaakov and said, Yaakov, how does one become a Christian? She writes in her book, Simmerman bent his knee under the soil with his head bowed and surrendered his life to Christ. And he rose from his feet, wiping his tears. And as he did, he embraced Yaakov and said, thank you for being in my life. And then he pointed to the heavens and whispered, Yaakov, you wear his coat very well. How are you wearing his coat? Are you giving people a glimpse of eternity that is to come by the way in which you live your life? Or when they look at you, do they see another person in the stream of life living as if no kingdom is ever going to come and the king is never going to return? I pray, as we're told in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world, a town built on a hill that cannot be hidden, that you and I would wear As the gospel penetrates our lives, we would wear his coat well. Father, thank you for the power in your scripture. Thank you for a reminder that you are going to return. You're the king. This is your kingdom. And all the damage that sin has caused will be removed. And the earth and the creation will be able to fulfill its ultimate objective. It will be released in the glorious freedom of the children of God the shackles will be taken away and it will serve mankind as it was meant to in the Garden of Eden. That paradise may have been lost, but it will be found, it will be regained when the king returns and honors those who've been loyal. And I pray that in our lives every day that we would wear your coat well. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, you make me